Life is a canvas. Listen as Dr. Allison R. Tendler and her guests paint the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and business leaders on her podcast, The Art of Seeing Clearly. Through insightful questions and thought-provoking conversation, Allison and her guests explore the essence of what it means to truly experience life, business, entrepreneurship, love, success, and even failure through a clearer lens. your host, Dr. Allison R. Tendler, board-certified ophthalmologist, surgeon, owner, and CEO of Art Vision and Artisan Skin and Laser Center. I literally get to work every day to help people see better on the 2020 eye chart. But true clarity in life and in business often requires a slightly different kind of vision. I happen to have a passion for learning how other entrepreneurs and leaders find their clarity, and I want to share with you some of their secrets to success. Christopher Reistroffer is an acclaimed photographer and principal of Reistroffer Design, an internationally renowned portrait, commercial, and event coverage photography studio based out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The photographer's eye-catching imagery has been attracting international press for two decades. His truly stunning photography and ability to capture the moments of life have been seen by millions. The studio's reputation for providing the highest quality visual materials consistently attract top U.S. officials, Fortune 500 CEOs, and countless major publications worldwide. Former Eastman Kodak CMO Jeffrey Hazlett has personally praised Christopher as one of the best photographers in the world. Chris and his team have truly perfected the art of seeing and capturing the best of life, business, community, and the world. Chris, welcome to the art of seeing clearly. Thanks for taking time to visit with me today and be part of our podcast. As you know, the art is seen clearly, so it really is more how you view the world, how you, through your lens, if you would, I mean, we both talk about that kind of stuff a lot, but what's, what's your lens that you look through as you see the world and see yourself and how does that meld into your professional work? Uh, to answer that question very easily, there's, there's one thing that I've learned in 20 years of photography, working with folks from all different backgrounds, shapes, sizes, colors, religious backgrounds, you name it, I've found that we are all the same person with a different life script. And that worldview has given me an appreciation for everyone and everything and allows me to be present because I can genuinely say that I love everyone because I understand that you're someone's daughter, maybe someone's spouse, you know, you're someone's mm-hmm. mother, someone's aunt, you know, same thing with the gentleman across the street, you know, he could be someone's son, or someone's, you know, dad or brother or mom mm-hmm. or friend. And in that we all have this very beautiful and dynamic role to play in society. And as a photographer, I've been mm-hmm. given the gift to A, help people remember, but also help people tell their story. And so being a storyteller for me is such an incredible gift that I've been given that when I first stepped into this field, I didn't anticipate. Well, I'd love to get into some of that too. It's like there are those unanticipated things as you start becoming who you're meant to be Mm -hmm. and finding out what your why is and what, what propels you to continue to do that or at the end of the day sometimes we alter 
um, as well. So, Chris, where did you grow up? Tell us a little about your childhood and where you came from. Let's go back, shall we? So I'm born and <laughs> raised here in Sioux Falls. Okay, you are. Um, I came in the world with a bang on January 1st. I was the first baby <laughs> born in South Dakota. You won the award. You won the award. We did. We did. My mother won. Your mother won the award. She won all sorts of hampers and diapers, and she missed the tax provision from 83 by like 31 minutes. <laughs> so there's a little bit of a chuckle in there. Oh, so, funny. Interestingly enough, um, my family didn't have means as I grew up, so I grew up in... Um, well, we moved around a little bit as a child, but in terms of Sioux Falls, we moved away and moved back okay. for a short time. But I actually grew up on West Sioux in uh, Australia State's trailer park okay. until uh, I was in fifth grade. We moved into our first house, which was a very big deal yeah. over by McKinnon Park. And uh, that is. Yeah, that was, that was, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of learning during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I actually, I have great gratitude. Awesome. Uh, for the way that the first many years of my life formulated, because my friends were from Ghana, they were from Romania, they were from Ukraine, they were from Russia. Because of or, where you, because of where you grew up, yeah, there were in that community, there were a lot of first generation children there, and I think that really led into my passion for culture and travel as I've gotten older. I'll never forget my fifth grade teacher. Uh, he would open up our classes with French. And so we had to order our lunch and have certain basic conversations in French, which as I got older, I dreamed of Paris and French culture. And when I got older, I ended up, you know, going there many different times, actually living there for a few months. So. Wow. That, that, that is amazing. How do you feel like that upbringing, you know, impacted your career choice? Well, Ultimately, I mean, life choice. That's that's a very pivotal moment. Um, uh, was it was it that? Was it later on where that kind of crept into you know your profession that you're you know well known for today? Well, I'd probably say about eighth grade, I was gifted a camera by. Okay, so you didn't grow up as like you know a four year old with this camera always on your hand or anything like that. There. There are a couple photographs that I have that I had taken from my early childhood that now that I look back, I can say like even as a child, I had a little bit of an eye, wasn't really a passion for him. Um, but near that, that, that late middle school age, um, there used to be a restaurant downtown called Maxwell's. Mm, yes. And the owners, Julian, were very, very sweet people. Uh, they gifted me my very first film camera. Uh, and that really was that kind of step over. This is really neat. I really enjoyed it. And I ended up going to college down in Pensacola, Florida. Okay. And when I went to Pensacola Christian College, I changed my major many different times, as so many young folks do. <laughs> and in the rug, without going into too in depth of a conversation, what I thought I wanted to be here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. Uh, my background ended up formulating around marketing. And what was quite fascinating in college is I didn't quite understand what it meant to overachieve, if you will, or to go the extra mile. So did you often not, were you not an ex, go the extra miler at that time? Or even growing up, did you did you think of going the extra mile? As I'm older, the extra mile is part of my daily. Yeah. What was fascinating was some of my entry-level marketing classes. A lot of students were using what we would use like iStock photo nowadays. 
you know, contemporary images you'd find online and they'd use those for their projects. I didn't quite like that approach. So I used my camera to go out and take pictures of X, Y, and Z. And very frankly, by the standards of a professional, they were great. But what was fascinating later down the road is my professors, they really admired the fact that I was making the project my own, that I was, you know, trying to create something where I wasn't trying to borrow which ultimately led to some very interesting uh, internships and relationships in the marketing industry because I was the student that they wanted to refer because they knew I would think out of the box. I would try something new. And I think, you know, growing up without it, it really invoked a creative spirit. And I think for a lot of folks that, you know, grow up in a home full of love, I stress my house was filled with love and kindness and all the things you want, but just material possessions and monetary status wasn't really a part of our culture. And so if you if you bought something, you definitely took care of it. And I try to teach that to my daughter today. I'm like, you don't realize you need to take care of this and how much work it takes to actually have this item. Mm-hmm. Because I grew up very similar, you know, sure. to you. How about it? what's fascinating is I find with a lot of my friends that have come up in life to achieve or pursue uh positions of of stature or authority where there's a lot of hard work that goes into it, it's because in their younger years there were trials and tribulations and they built that tenacity young. And that really, as they shifted into the adult sphere, it allowed them to have those boots on the ground where some folks that maybe that didn't have to persevere in such a way at a young age were learning in their 20s, where some of us started to learn that when we were children and how those lessons apply in life it, it was essentially knowledge in the goal that I wouldn't take away from, from anything. And then the current generations, there's some wonderful, I mean, they've got wonderful, you know, people in each generation. I don't care if you're X, Y, Z, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is something to be said about a little bit of adversity early on, which no one like, ooh, can't wait to do that again, yet sets us up truly for where we, you know, whether we knew exactly where we're heading, but it set us up to work hard towards trying to get somewhere. A hundred percent. Sometimes when you're in the moment, you almost can be upset. Why is this difficult for me and easy for me? Yeah. Why is this road for me longer and their road is, is, you know, maybe a bit shorter. But when we look at the hindsight, I feel like sometimes, you know, as long as we have that right mental shift, we shift that paradigm of victim you know, or why was I this or that, but really look back and go, wow, this was a gift. This was a unique world position that later in life, it creates an ability to be relatable. It creates an understanding of empathy and sympathy. Uh, When you see someone struggling, you understand that their success is your success. Your success is their success. So you want to see all tides rise together. And that's where, as a professional, I, I'm within myself, I'm very hyper-competitive. You know, like, how can I be 1% better today than I was yesterday? But when I see others within my industry or others, I always want to see them succeed. There's no part of me that says, I feel great today because someone next to me didn't achieve. I would rather say... Or because of their failure is why I am this today. Or mm-hmm. like 100%. 100%. So what is something that you might do to help yourself try to always aim for that 1% better? 
How do you do that? I have always liked discipline, mm-hmm. and I've always liked consistency. Uh, college was uh, a bit of a, a of a shock for me, but it ended up creating um, a real tone. The college I went to and lots of rules. Why in the world did you go to that college? Like, like what was it? Oh, the girl. Why would you not? Pensacola, Florida. The school was on the beach. Uh, there were palm trees. There was a girl. There was a girl. But in that, with the school that I went to, if we didn't make our bed, you'd get demerits. If you didn't go your trash, you can get demerits. If you didn't wear your tie to class, you can get demerits. If you weren't on time, you would get demerits. Uh, there were a lot of protocols put in place. And at the time, it was very stressful, but I adapted very quickly and very easily to it. And to this day, I wake up and I make my bed. Uh, but in that, it's, you know, I keep a routine, I stay disciplined. Like every day that I wake up, I like to have a series of goals and achievements that I've made that nobody can take. And they may seem small, but what they do is they give you something to look back on the day and say, you know what, I can handle this. So, for example, every day, doesn't matter what day of the week it is, what holiday, I wake up at 5 a.m. First thing I do immediately is I make my bed. After I make my bed, I take a few minutes to appreciate gratitude. I take that time to give myself positive affirmations. I use that time to, to center myself. And then I go... Uh, off on my own for, for a bit of a workout, no run. Well, then I come back, and by that time, it's like 6.30 a.m. Nobody's really awake. Nobody is out emailing me or invading my space. I shower myself up, and by 7 a.m., I'm locked, loaded, I'm ready to go out. I'm ready to take on the day. And because I've had X, Y, and Z as my personal victories for the day, it gives me that attitude for the day that I can take on whatever comes towards me. And because I recognize the night before, that means either I'm going to bed on time, which I try to do nine out of 10 times, but doesn't always happen. But I know what, I don't go to bed at nine. And I go to bed at 11. I know there are consequences the next day because I'm not going to feel good, but because I'm disciplined, not motivated. I'm a big believer that motivation will get you started, but discipline will get you through. And that consistency that helped for a very long time it really does spill over into the clients that I work with. And as an artist, I love my tribe as an artist. I have to stress that before I make this statement. But a lot of artists, they're kind of like blowing leaves out for us. They just kind of move through. They kind of do their own thing. Whereas if you know, you're working with somebody that's maybe a certain military professional, like it is on point each time, every time, on point each time, every time. It is a beating drum that does not shift because errors have legitimate consequences. And as an artist, to be able to bring that mindset to so many business owners and families and folks that I serve, they recognize that, you know, he's gonna be on time. He's gonna be consistent. He's gonna be organized. He's gonna be professional. It's not to say that other artists don't have that, but within the culture that I come from, we typically don't display those binary consistencies because Artists tend to be more globular. Well, you're talking about being disciplined in this. And I'm like, doesn't that go against the whole concept of being an artist and free-flowing and creative? And I'm like, are they on time? Are they going to come? Is time important? <laughs> mm-hmm. I could also being on time, just like dressing well for those around you as a way of showing respect. 
By the way, everybody, Chris has on a tie and he looks top notch today. Business casual all the way. So he he practices what he preaches. I think it's about respect. It, you know, it's one of the things that when I talk to young folks, I, I tell them, you don't have to be the best at what you do. But if you're on time, you're honest, if you communicate well, and if you take accountability, if something goes wrong, don't deflect. You want to speak to my my whole team? But they do a really good job, so I'm not I'm not picking on them at all. But you speak my language, and so uh, transitioning that from life to running a business, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of, you know, there's just a lot of similarities between what you're just saying. Sure, it's about peace. It's about calm. It's you know, because when you when you set those disciplines and those consistencies. It helps you from sitting too far in the past, because at least for me, I found that if I sit in the past, I find depression. Mm. And it also helps me stay in the present, because if I look too far forward, I find like if you spend too much time in the future, you find anxiety. Anxiety. And it just kind of works you up a little bit. But if you can stay present, handle the task at hand, and own whatever's given to you, it allows you to deal with it in a way that is met with a certain measure that will, will meet the standards of not only yourself. And if you have high standards for yourself, more often than not, that will exceed the expectations of those that you serve or you engage with. Do you feel that those basis of discipline that you're talking about that you have for your own personal life, do you feel that those have led to some of the successes that you've had in your professional life that otherwise like they recognize that in you? And appreciate that, and that's what's kept you like top of mind. A hundred percent. I forget it was a president that said it. So forgive me for not knowing the name of it. But the quote is along the lines of, "I find the harder I work, the luckier I get." Mm-hmm. I think he even opens it up with, uh, "I don't play with some online lines. I, you know, I don't believe in luck. I believe in working hard. And the harder I work, mm-hmm. the luckier I get." And I've been presented with some really remarkable opportunities that clearly should have not just found my plate by just, hey, here you go, have at it, but rather you've shown consistency for a long period of time. And that means if I've, you know, if I'm working with someone and they've invested everything that they can in themselves and their dream to cultivate something, it's a sacred place to be in close proximity to that person. And when you can, you know, almost without even saying they can know that they can depend and there's consistency, it, it, it opens up so much trust. And that's, I think, the biggest thing that so many of us want in business and in life is to have that giving and receiving of trust. And I think that comes through respect. And I think at the very base of it, it comes from discipline and more than just discipline, but self-discipline. Because self-discipline, I'd found, is not something that can be brought up by like a guru or a parent or a coach. It really has to come from within. And, you know, that's a fire that I think, at least for me, I had to turn on. And I'm glad that it's a roaring fire. It's just mm-hmm. when I see people fall short of what they're capable of, I typically find it's because they have not implemented discipline. And made things habits. Mm-hmm. We use the word, you know, habit a lot around um, my office, whether it's on the surgical side, the eye side, the aesthetic side, mm-hmm. that if it's important, we will make it a habit, which really is another word as I think about it for being disciplined mm-hmm. in what do you want, setting up goals and going after it in a systematic mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And to kind of piggyback on that, 
I think when someone says I can't, what they're really saying is I won't. And I think there's that 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 differentiation that, you know, yes, don't see, but then once you open your mind's eye to it, you're like, you actually said I won't because if something's important to you, yes, you will make time. Because every one of us on our time on earth, we have the same amount of time, you know, the same amount of minutes in a day. And there's some people that can accomplish quite a lot, and some that you know, just the tire spins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the goal should be traction. Now, that's where I try not to judge my individual success. I can say, you know, certainly my own failures, which I call opportunities. I can study, you know. As we all should. Because in, in the end, I mean, there are only two people on earth, I believe, that we genuinely need to impress. And that's who you were when you were a small child, that five-year-old version of you, and then the 80-year-old version of you. And if those two people can look at you and what you accomplished in your life and can say, I'm proud of you, like, you you did something great. I don't know, but I'm sitting here tearing up over that because it's just beautiful. I mean, that is, that is, that that statement of that, I mean, think of yourself as that five, six-year-old, even a 10-year-old as you're going through stuff. And you had, whether you knew it or not, you still had dreams or you had an idea kind of a feeling inside of you and if you at that you know can make that person proud and then the person at the end of the life proud i mean that's just a a beautiful way to uh to kind of encompass encompass life and what is our what is our real goal Mm -hmm. yeah that touches many hearts along the way as you can Mm -hmm. so you get to create time capsules with your camera right you talk about creating time capsules and and you've alluded a little bit to it. Um, what of one of the time capsules that you've taken? What's been something that's been really impactful for you? On uh, you know, not about you, but you know, for another. And if you had to just pick one, I know that's so hard because every story is so special and unique. But what's one that stuck with you? You know, it's funny you say it could be hard to pull everything out. I've had many amazing moments. I'm not part of many amazing interactions, but there was one in particular um, that is actually really emotional for me. So if I get a little teary or I lose my voice, boom, might take me a minute to recover. But I remember when I first started photographing weddings. Right at that age, when I just got into the profession, it was, you know, how many likes can I get on MySpace if anybody remembers that social media? That's right, MySpace. It was, you know, okay, I'm going to make some good money. I'm going to pay my rent. And maybe if I do a good job, I'll get to work on cheap other weddings. Well, what really hit me at this wedding is I always wanted to capture interesting shots, but I never fully understood the ramifications of it. And I was, interestingly enough, at the Washington Pavilion in downtown Sioux Falls. And my bride and groom were on the center stage dancing. And I happened to be out out in the seats so I could see the stage and I could see all the people behind him. And as they were in this loving embrace during their first dance, you could see between their chest and their chin this beautiful heart ah. that had formed. So it was a silhouette and you could see this beautiful heart. And in my mind's eye, I was just like, yes, this is going to get so many likes. People are going to like this. Well, as I was taking that picture, just like when you're watching a movie, you can shift the focus. And I actually shifted the focus into the heart shape between our necks and right in the back was the bride's mom and her dad watching them in a loving embrace. 
And that was a huge, huge thing where I was, again, I was in the moment, not really processing, like, this is a great shot. This is great. They're going to love this. This is amazing. Post-taking that photo afterward, they knew that bride and her mom were very close because so many women are best friends with their mothers. But she immediately ran over and gave her mom a hug and a smile, and they were celebrating so much love and joy. Told me a couple days later, like a brick to the face, her mother randomly died of a brain aneurysm. Those were the last photos that they had together. And that's when it really clicked that this is not about money. Like, you are helping people remember it. If you don't pay razor close attention, moments are missed. Memories are missed. And some of those photos, how many of us look in our house at a picture of us, the child or a lost pet or a lost family member, and that, that one photo lets you just go in and just hug about it takes you to that moment where you get to say, this this was our moment in time. And that's where I'm I'm all about achievements made and, you know, buying a cool pair of shoes or neat sunglasses or a cool car or a great house. But the one thing in life that we truly all knew we get to keep is our moments in time. And that's it. Everything comes and goes. I don't care how neat your shoes are, they'll eventually wear I don't care how cool your drinks are, they'll eventually lose their fashion. But those moments in time, those relationships, those interactions that we get to share with those that, that mean so much to us, those are what are most valuable. And a moment like that, I'm fortunate that prospectively I got to witness that at a young age. I got to have that click at a young age because mm -hmm. I run into people on the regular that they may not ever, A, understand that, or B, they don't understand until they're super old or they haven't figured it out until it's too late. And that's where they talk about that being present. You're really absorbing the moment. Because as a photographer, if I'm invited to someone's special moment, I recognize like that baby's only going to be a little for a minute. That toddler is only going to babble for a couple minutes. The kids are only going to scream for a couple minutes. And before you know it, you go from being, you know, mommy to mom to a hot mess of I hate you to all of a sudden kids go in the world and realize they were right. And then you shift into mother and father and helping people acknowledge that timeline is something that I find very special, very dear to my heart. So what's one of your time capsules? What's what's one of your life that you hold? for yourself, a picture that you're like, this is my picture. That when you look at it, you're brought back. We spent a lot of time in Idaho as a family when I was a little boy. Mm -hmm. And we did a big group of trials, huge family on the rice dropper side. And when some people say huge, they mean like 10, 15. I mean like 60. There might have been <laughs> more of us. As in our family, it's not uncommon for or like my dad, I think he's offhand. I, my aunts will hit me if I get it wrong. Record seven kids, <laughs> and many of them have seven or eight kids themselves. And it's a picture where we were, we're all together. It was my nana's, I think it was her fiftieth birthday party. Seems so old, right? Right. And and now, you know, many years later, um, shame I'm in her sixtieth. <laughs> but 
just seeing the whole family together in one place was just so special. It was so special. And that's part of why I tell folks all the time, like, it's a beautiful thing to, to capture your immediate family. But if grandma and grandpa are around, oh, man. You know, if you're, you know, you're an adult and your siblings have kids, oh, man. Grab a couple of photos because I can't speak to all the listeners, but I know many of my cousins feel like siblings. And it's so beautiful now that we're all grown-ups and now we're in the chapter of life. We get to plan the events. We get to welcome people in. That um, just that's just it's just a photograph that really holds holds tight to me. Well, it's because you do you create these moments for everybody. So I was wondering what your you know special time capsule that was you know photographed at some time that you hold dear to yourself. Photography, design, all of these things are definite artistries. I mean, you you know there's so many artists in in the world with different professions. And so photography is definitely one of those things as we being artistic. And a lot of those things are are inspired as well. Like what in like what what inspired you to like say this is going to be the route I'm gonna take? Was there anything that like finally clicked like this is what I'm gonna do or was it like a series like you said, luck, right place, right time. I don't think that. or what today inspires you. You know, it's like these are the projects that inspire me. Well, there was a lot of questions there. There was. Uh, but in that, to go back, interestingly enough, um, when I was fresh out of college, I was a manager at uh, a local local store. We'll say that. And uh, while I was that manager, it's always been out my heart to serve as a servant. At that time, we had, um, our country has faced a national disaster with Hurricanes Rita and Katrina. And I said, I can help. This is something I like, I can do. Some people send money. I said, I can go down there and I can help. I'm able-bodied, I'm able-minded. I can go down and I can help. Long story short, I had a very meaningful experience serving with the Red Cross. But when it was time to come back to Sioux Falls, I found out from upper management that I had been gone too long, even though they gave me permission to leave. And I was removed from my position and transferred to a different department. And that department happened to involve cameras. He's smiling big, everybody. <laughs> There's a big smile on Chris's face. <laughs> and at first, I was highly disappointed, deeply upset, but it reintroduced me to a passion that I had when I was younger. It reintroduced me to some of the lessons that I had learned in college where I could apply in that department where I hadn't done that. And interestingly enough, it's where I ended up buying my first digital camera because I got a very good deal. Uh, and then that slowly while I worked other jobs, because you know, for a lot of photographers, it's a hobby at first. It, you know, it, it like, well, maybe I can do senior pictures. Okay, I can practice on these. Okay. Well, your senior pictures are okay. Yeah, I, I bet you I can probably help someone sell their wedding. It might not be very good, but I can do that. And that was kind of neat. And then I really loved live music. I went to a very conservative college. So rock and roll and all that. 
quote unquote heathenistic music was completely forbidden. I ended up really enjoying um, shooting concerts. And what's fascinating is because I don't drink alcohol. Um, drugs are not for me. Cool. Anybody want to have a glass of wine? Cool. Anyway. Um, but I'd work a lot of concerts and I would have the imagery turned in either within hours of the event or early morning the next day, which was helpful for them, for their press and their social media and magazines and so on and so forth. And a lot of those tour managers and band managers were like, you actually work. You don't go out and party. Like you get things done. And because I came from a very conservative environment, the party scene just did not feel natural to me. Not there's anything wrong with it. Mm -hmm. Just did not sit well with, you know, how long. Disciplined nature. And so I would go and do those things and that ended up putting me in front of larger audiences and larger audiences. And I'll never forget when I was afforded the opportunity to photograph Dave Matthews. That was a really big one. Was that, was that local? Was it national? Where did that take place? So if you know where the Wee Fest grounds are up mm-hmm. in North Dakota, and it's Sean Stratton and led him to Wee Fest. Uh, <laughs> but I was a big Dave Matthews fan. And I said, I because I have shooting concerts, I can shoot this in my... I just want to photograph Dave for my portfolio. But first, the, the promoter said, no, we got taken care of. And then I howled it a little bit more. And I howled it a little bit more. Let it go. No, I followed him. I'll come up and do it. Take care of it. I'll do it. And they finally caved. Long story short, they ended up being some of the best photographs of the festival. And those photographs were put in Polestar, Rolling Stone, some very big magazines, just because I turned the images over right away. Not that they really did anything special. They were just high quality. I turned them over right away. I was professional. I was kind. I was courteous. And I expressed, expressed gratitude for the opportunity to be there. What was fascinating is, oh, within a couple of weeks or a month later, I got a call from folks that were part of that festival. It also led to the ownership of Fest, And I have been their end photographer now off and on for, I think, like 13 years. And what was very fascinating about that particular event is they did go through an interview process. And in the root, I got called up to go meet with the promoters of the event, some decision makers. I got up there and we talked about cameras and some of the concerts I went to, yada, yada. And then they asked me a question that was kind of jarring. And that, you know, this this gentleman with white hair at the end of the table looks me dead in the eyes and goes, tell me. Who's your favorite country music act? And I kind of paused. That jarred you? It did. Because <laughs> I looked him dead in the eye. I won't curse here. But I looked him dead in the eye and I said, do I have your permission to swear? And he goes, what? And I go, do I have your permission to swear? And I said, I'd blank hate country music. And he goes, What? And I go, I don't listen to it at all. I go, I listen to dance music. I go, I'm interested in the PAs, soundstage, the energy behind the backstage, the press deadlines, the lighting and the crowd, the energy was wrong with it. But for who's on stage, I don't know who they are and I don't care. And he got up, like aggressively got up, put his hands down on the table, set his pen down, walked across the room. And I'm a little guy, he's a big guy. And I stood up because... You don't ever shake anybody's hand sitting down. And he puts his hand out, he shakes my hand very aggressively, he goes, you're hired. 
And I go, what? Because I thought I was out. And he goes, plain simply goes, you're hired because I know you're not going to hump the legs of people that I put on stage. And I was like, what? And funny enough, being a part of WeFest all these years, Country Music A is a very close-knit family. Who you know and what you know are different. And really in Country Music, it's who you know. And many years later, I love Miranda Lambert. I love Blake Shelton. Chancellor Dean and like, uh, you know, you know, Lee Bryce, you know, and some of these people have become my friends. You've become a country music fan. Oh, and I love their music now, and it resonates, and it's just, it's, and as I get older, I love it more and more. That leads me to a question. I had, do you feel that you can, you know, does your, can you disentangle your professional and personal lives as you start melding so closely with some of your, you know, yeah. subjects? So this is what, what I've learned, and, and it, it's kind of funny because a lot of people are, I cannot believe you said that to somebody. Ooh. But to lead in before I make this statement, what I've come to learn about our time on Earth is, where I go back to my original statement, we're all the same person with a different life script. Some of us just happen to have an exceptional talent. Still put on your socks the same way. Still put on your shoes the same way. You still go to sleep at night. And what was fascinating is we we picked up Jason L. Dean at the airport. His fan came in on a bus. They sat up everything. He flew on a private jet. And I'll never forget on the side of his jet. It said, live in life and fast forward. And I thought that was so cool. I was like, that's just cool. Not only did you come in on a private jet, but your private jet says, live in life and fast forward. And when you can travel like that, you can go to so many places and so many different times, just like when I met President Clinton. But falling back when he was on stage, and I was done getting my photos, and I had gotten in or, you know, engaged with a bunch of the people that are part of the staff before he went on stage. And so it was a little more cordial. And I was totally joking, but I was standing right by his tour manager, and I looked at him, and I go, mind this Jason Aldean on stage. They've got 70,000 fans moving their hands. Everybody's dancing. The whole place is just lively as all get out. And I look at his tour manager, and I go, he's really good at karaoke. <laughs> and he just, oh, like... What? And I'm like, I just get it. But in that, you know, I think sometimes people put other folks on a pedestal and understanding that when we show people the same level of respect and dignity, whether they are the CEO of a company or they're the person that cleans your office, the same level of respect and dignity, that's when we have a true understanding of the human experience. Because just because they're good at singing or they're very good at accounting or they're very good at banking or they're really good at football or the mixed martial arts fighters are with, you know, they're good at throwing punches or choking people out. Or, you know, they have really beautiful cheerleaders, you know, whatever it may be. They all have the same wants, the same needs, the same insecurities and the same desire for inner peace and happiness. And if there's one thing I genuinely learned is I have clients on the far right that genuinely have private jets in homes in different places of the country, and I've got afforded the opportunity to travel with them. And I have other clients on the very other spectrum of it where it's a single mom with two kids, and I might give them a little something extra on their photo shield because I know that mama bear is working her butt off to make something special for these kids. And there's no difference in the side. Like this might have a wow factor, but sometimes, you know, it's, it, it's it's reminiscent of 
you know, when I was in college, part of my ed school, part of my background, I have a minor in Bible. And, you know, we learned about Pharisees and how they went, when they would tie, they would come in with singers and whistlers and, and incense. And there was just loud gongs and things to let people know that they're giving. And one of the messages that um, our pastor in a church uh, or at school and our, in, in our weekends, Pastor Shetler, and he talked about giving your full heart. And he had pointed out that if a rich man, just pretend you have a million dollars in the bank account, you're a rich man, you have a thousand dollars, doesn't matter, you're not going to notice it. Church, thousand dollars, good amount of money. But if you are quote unquote a poor man and he has a thousand dollars in his bank account, and he gives a thousand dollars. Who gave more? And I think that's one of the par parables in life that that we should all hold on to. Is no one's better than anyone else. We're all really on that same field, and that's where it comes in. What do you give and what do you get? And that's where I talk about that mutual respect for for all folks. That same love. Do you think that's what? I mean, you are a a professional, you're local, national, internationally known. You've done a, a amazing work. What keeps you, you know, local here in Sioux Falls? You could be anywhere. Um, uh, you know, we could like, what keeps you grounded here when you like, hey, I did this with President Clinton. Hey, I did this over here. What, how do you so I guess, grapple that with your, you know, with who you are? So first, to answer the people, I love our community. I love the people. I love our culture. Over the last many years, um, I've been a dual resident between Sioux Falls and Las Vegas, and nothing that I'm about to say is a negative towards Vegas. Nothing. Nothing to say is really a positive towards South Dakota, but it gave me another, another perspective on things. And the easiest way to say is here in Sioux Falls and in the Midwest, I look at us almost like we are a big rooted force, like imagine a forceful big oak trees and all of our roots are intermingled and they're all together and plainly spoken here, you dump some gas by roots here, people know very quickly. <laughs> they know very quickly. So you get the parable there on like, you know, good nature, you know, if you're honest, integrity, people know. We're in a bigger community like Las Vegas. It's not to say there aren't oak trees in that forest, but that environment, it's almost like leaves blowing through. And because there's so much transient behavior, so many people come through that you might take two months and really develop this relationship and another move their car. Or, you know, somebody's changed or they've moved on something else. We're here, we're deep-rooted, but I feel like you can do anything you want for Sioux Falls. We are such a well-rounded, tightly-knit community that our roots stretch far and wide. There are so many of us here that we establish ourselves here because I feel like, not that you don't have these tendencies or these traits in other parts of the country and the world, because you do, but here I feel like it's more saturated where you find the people that have that, that, that mentality that former has, we're gonna put our hat on nice and early, we're gonna work really hard, we're gonna keep our head down. And that's where at, and it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, there's a level of modesty here that, you know, you might not find like in Miami or New York or Chicago or Las Vegas or LA. There's a different level of 
modesty here. And I think, you know, that it's, 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 um, unrelated to your question, but it just sparks with me is, uh, my great grandfather invented a machine called the deck finisher. And if you're driving, can I, can I have that? I'd love the deck finisher. Yeah. Well, I ended up in it. It's like, but I'll take it. <laughs> it's a machine that paints concrete. And so if you've ever taken off on a plane on an airport or you've driven on a public road, there's a good, good, good chance that you've driven on one of my grandpa's roads. Uh, he passed away long before I was born. So I have a deep tie to like um, just the family culture that's behind. He's always been a very large inspiration to me. But um, I got to meet his business partner, um, his wife. So Murray Rowe is my, was my grandpa's business partner. And his wife, Helen Rowe, one of the sweetest ladies and she had said something to me that that's really resounding. And sometimes I can be a little flashier than I should be. And Helen had really pointed out to me, and she goes, this is a good lesson for you to hold in your life. And I just kind of looked at her and she goes, understand that stealth is wealth. And when you really think about what that statement means on a really deep real, like I have a lot of those analogies, if you will, but I've noticed that some things are better done in silence. Some things are, be, are done better without raising a horn. But really when it comes to sometimes your successes, they're better off kept in private. Sometimes if you've got a really big win financially, like if I work on a really, really big project, I'm like, man, this is the biggest project I've ever worked on. I made a boatload of money on this is amazing. If I'm to go out with a blow horn and shout to the world, today I made X number of dollars, how many people is that going to turn off? It's not going to attract that night. And we yeah. live in this world where we have to put our little chain on our neck, you know, have this big fancy bracelet, pull up in a Rolls Royce to say, hey, I've achieved. When the reality is so many of the folks that I've met that have truly achieved, you'll see them in a t shirt, blue jeans, and a Toyota Camry. And it's great because nobody bothers them. Nobody hounds them for X, Y, and Z because stealth is wild. Different answer, different part of the conversation, but yeah, but that, anybody, that, that's, that's what still draws you back to, you yeah. know, to stay. Yeah. I appreciate our modest roots here. I really, really do. I really, really do. And I appreciate that in Sioux Falls that if someone asks you how your day is, they need it. When I walk around downtown Sioux Falls, I can easily, within a 10-minute period, walk into 15, 20 people I know, have a connection to them, know something about their family, know something about them, and then about me. And so there's, there, the, so, some people like anonymity. They don't mind people knowing who I am, but I love being surrounded by people and going to a you know a local cafe and someone walk up and go, you're our little duck, because at their wedding, you know, I got to be a part of it, or, you know, I... I I photographed a young lady's diagnosis for cancer, you know, and the process through that, even till the closing of her life. And having that bond was her mother. You know, those are the relationships. You said you were a storyteller. Those are stories. Yeah. And they impact you. They change you. They change your worldview. And if you notice, a lot of what we talk about is not cameras and f-stops and lighting and clothing and hair and makeup. Those are elements of it, but it's really people and relationships and that's been the biggest gift that my career has given me is meaningful relationships and experiences. And those could never be taken from me. No. You need the skill in order to be able to get the mm -hmm. outcome. Tell me about that 
skill and that you have to have an eye. Sometimes you don't know why you're good at something, but you're just good at something. Sure. Did you have to train yourself to get that way? Like, how is it that you might look at something differently than somebody else? Well, what's interesting is I actually have dyslexia. And so when I was a student, through any part of my education, reading was always very difficult, especially reading out loud. Reading out loud was a surefire way to make me into an introvert by I want to be in the back of the room. I just want to read it alone. I'm going to read it four or five times. I don't want to come off as dumb. Like, I just need my own time. And I didn't realize until I was in college that I had this learning disability. Wow. I didn't I didn't realize it. I mean, in school, there were certain classes that they gave me that, you know, allegedly helped, but they really didn't because it really wasn't that diagnosed. It's just like when I was a child, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And what I really learned for a lot of people is I personally don't. At least for me, I can't speak for others, but I don't think yeah. ADHD is is real because I feel like if you're an adult and you're in a bad situation, you're either going to get up and leave or you're going to create an aggressive conversation if it's, if it's a bad situation. Children are just going to sit there and shake. They, they don't have the ability to fight or to fight. They have to just sit there. And then if you throw a disability into it and there's that unease of being able to communicate it, it creates strife. But as for my photography... I, for some reason, can walk into a room and within a second tell you if a picture is not hung in the dense center of the room or if it's an off and end. Gee, well, I like that talent. You know, yeah. I, I, you know it's like uh, I, I've worked with children uh, with dyslexia because, you know, I understand so I'm there mm -hmm. and I can see them struggling and I'll say to them, like, you like shapes, colors, and textures, don't you? And they're like, uh-huh, I do. And I go... Well, we're going to do this. These letters, we're going to make them all capital letters. Because capital and lowercase letters, if you're dyslexic, L's and I's get out of here. W's, U's, and V's get out of here. Like, you look at, like, there are certain names that I look at that are not spelled phonetically. That I just sit there like, I am going to say their name wrong. And it's going to be embarrassing for me. And they're going to feel bad. So I will ask them before I get there, how do I say their name? And then right beside them, I'll put a quote there. Another yeah, I'll do it phonetically. My last name is Reistroffer. That's not an easy one either. No, it's <laughs> German. It still confuses me. <laughs> but if I write down for somebody, you know, Rye, R-Y-E, you know, like like the crane, and then a dash and the word straw, and then a dash fur, if you are Reistroffer, they're like, oh, that makes sense. So I'd had to learn to do those things. And so anyways, if you would re-ask your question, I'll answer it in more depth than that. But it, it brought me down that trip for some reason. Yeah, the, um, you know, well, golly, I don't even know if I can remember what the question was. I just love it. The artistic eye. Mm. What is it about, you know, you that makes you just see things differently and sets you, sets you apart with that, you know, from your photography skills of what you see, how you see it? Do you have any insight into that, that what makes you your own artist? I think for any artist, I, I when I when I when I've done junior achievement over the years, I asked how many kids I raise their hands, how many do you have a cell phone? And almost unanimously everybody raises their hand. And I say, fun fact, I make my complete living off the tool each and every one of you have in your pocket. And that's where when someone says, I don't know if I can be a great photographer, I go, Well, anybody can be a photographer. Well, it's kind of like song lyrics. Anybody can write a song. But that ability to create harmony and to create poetry and motion, that's a different story. You know, it's just like storytelling. You know, some people, you know, they acquire that ability to paint that picture in the mind's eye. But I think is what 
what has made Lily as an individual stand out from other artists is I fortunately have gotten to a point in my career where I can see something in my mind's eye and I can now make it. And that takes a lot of technical knowledge because you have to start understanding lighting. You have to understand geometry. You have to understand the metrics of the camera. You have to understand what each lens can do, what light can do, what color of light can do, what time of day impacts. And that's where... Those are your tools to make your artwork. Yeah. Like for me, like I have found, interestingly enough, when I'm most happy, my artwork is consistent. Mm. But interestingly enough, when I'm sad or depressed, my artwork, it it has a level of intensity to it that draws people in. And it kind of correlates with a, with a lyric that Dave Matthews said in one of the songs that just stood out to me. And he goes, my worst day is your favorite song. And there was a piece of uh, art that I made many years ago when we had the PP oil spill. I love animals. I love the ocean. And the idea of oil spilled all over animals to me is heartbreaking. Yeah. And, you know, experiencing that with so many folks and going to college down the Gulf and the PP oil spill, you know, affected mm -hmm. so many animals, our whole ecosystem. Uh, it was one of those things that, well, what happened was I started having nightmares. Because if something really works me up, it can't. I can't just put it away when I sleep. And so what I like to do sometimes in the middle of the night is if I notice I've had a reoccurring dream and I can't completely remember it, I will intentionally wake myself up at like 2 a.m. And right next to my bed, I will have a notepad and I will write and dream about X, Y, and Z. And sometimes I, I can't remember what I dreamt about in that sense, but I can draw what I saw. And what I saw was a human being covered in oil. And what I ended up doing, um, with, um, with the help of a very good friend of mine, she's an amazing model, and a uh, very near and dear longtime friend, uh, Dominique from Chef Dominique's Catering, uh, we decided to use Hershey's chocolate to represent oil. And in the root, I ended up covering my model completely in chocolate and I completely muted all the colors because I didn't want color of skin in the photograph because I think for some people, the color of skin can lead to something that is better case of words, erotic, if you will. But it wasn't about that. It was about humanness. It was about human form. And I actually used a nude figure because if you're wearing Dior or Gucci or Tom Ford, and you cover them in oil. Well, now it only affects rich people. Well, if you, you know, put somebody in, you know, very, you know, basic clothing like I wear 90% of the time, well, then it puts that social class stigma. Well, I specifically chose a female model that was from appearance very androgynous. So it didn't even speak to the male or female, but it spoke to human. And that particular artwork ended up being seen in some really amazing places and seen by some really amazing people that helped share my artistry. But it helped, you know, set that tone of how you can create something in your mind's eye and it can set you apart. And I think that's what great art does. Great art is something that invokes thought process for people. Because when I talk about 
making art, if I'm sad or depressed or I'm in that phase, I've found that making art, not taking pictures or doing portraits of people, but for mm-hmm. making art, when you're making it, it's therapy for you. It's your therapy. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed is when you put that out in the world, it's open to interpretation. And people can love it, they can hate it. They which, can is, it. which is what art is, though, too. They're going to love it or hate it. And they can say this is beautiful, or they can say it's evil, or whatever they want. And it took time for me to understand that having really thick skin as an artist is actually very important because everybody has an opinion. And that's why I tell people, no matter if, if you're happy, make good art. If you're successful, make good art. If you're failing, <laughs> make good art. If you've had a bad day, make good art. Because making good art is something that anybody and everybody can do. And it's always subjective. Because you, like I make some art and the moment I absolutely love it. This is amazing. This is the best thing I've ever made. And then like four months later, I'm like, we need to burn it. Like, I don't need this anymore. I don't like it. You know, <laughs> and it just sits there. And so art I tell people, you know, don't worry if other people are going to like it or what's going to be seen differently by others. But make make art, whether it be your writing, whether it be your pottery or writing a song or writing a poem or creating a photograph or what have you. Make your art because only you are going to be able to tell your story. And I think what's fortunate for me is when I work with someone on a private basis, like a wedding or a family session or even a commercial shoot, I'm helping that client make art that either has sentimental value to them or professional value to them. And if you can create something, at least for me, a lot of my work nowadays is commercial, but if you can help that particular business, that particular speaker, author, or songwriter, whatever, you can help them stand out, that's really unique. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like back in the 70s, the average person was only exposed, I think, between like 600 and 1,500 images a day. And I think nowadays with their cell phones, if memory serves right, it's anywhere between like 6,000 to 15,000 images a day. And for me, like I have to work with my clients to create something that's going to like grab that customer by the ear and go, hey, look at me. Because that's where, you know, I tell people all the time, right? Anybody can be a photographer. But when you really step into that professional realm, you really got to have your ducks in a row because... Lots and lots and lots and lots of photographers. And I was guilty of it when I was a young photographer too. We hide shoddy photography with filters and black and whites. Like I tell people all the time, you got bad photo, make it black and white. All of a sudden it's artistic. It's better. Raise the contrast. Now you got a great photo. Anyways, long answer. No, I love hearing your stories. I love hearing what makes you you. And I think we are going to have to kind of unfortunately conclude our podcast because I could go on for another hour listening to you and asking questions. And I just want you to know, I mean, truly, this has been one of the most uh, inspirational talks that I've had on my podcast. Um, And it's really, really touched me, just the who behind who you are Mm -hmm. and how you think um, and how you are yourself in the world, but also in your professional world. Mm -hmm. I think the kind of looking at our entrepreneurs that might be listening as well, um, their businesses are their art. Their mm-hmm. it's their brand, it's their art. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, you you are this presence telling the story. And so to take some of the concepts that you've talked about in the photography and artistry world 
and try to flip them for purposes of what is my business telling? How am I an artist within my own business? And taking some of the disciplines that you've talked about, being disciplined, being accountable, um, help help find those stories in your clients and your patients. And I think that we will find more fulfillment in our lives when it becomes more about them and their story than about us and our story and, and our businesses. So I truly cannot thank you enough for spending time with me today. And I hope our listeners have felt the same exact way. And may all of us strive to be 1% better tomorrow than we are today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Doctor. Yeah. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.